Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hello and welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. And this is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. We do an in-depth discussion with different creative Mississippians. We talk to artists, musicians, photographers, and people who help uh, promote the arts in their community. We're being assisted today by our capable producer, Kevin Farrell. And today we are, this is part of our ongoing series of interviews uh, this month in advance of the annual Governor's Arts Awards. So every uh, we, every Sunday during the, the month of January, we're talking with different uh, uh, upcoming recipients. The Governor's Arts Awards will be taking place uh in February, on Thursday, February 6th, and it's going to be take the ceremony is going to take place at the Old Capitol Museum in Jackson at 6 p.m. It's free and open to the public. And so today we have an, another one of our recipients today, our lifetime achievement, one of our lifetime re- achievement recipients today, Mr. Henry Danton. Mr. Danton, welcome. I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you so much for coming. Uh, this is a special occasion for having a Lifetime Achievement recipient here. But I believe in uh, in the history of this program, the Arts Hour, which has been on for over 10 years at this point, uh, you are our first cen- centenarian, centenarian, right? <laughs> yeah, our first that's right. Per- he, uh, you turned 100 years old last year. Is last that right? March, yes. Yeah. Last March. So you'll be 101 in March. That's right, and 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 just looking great. And uh, well, we uh, we brought you here to talk a little bit about your career. And uh, for people who are not familiar with you, just tell us a little bit about kind of who you are and what you do as an artist. Uh, well, um, let's see. I was originally a dancer, and before I was a dancer, I was in the army because uh, I was born into an army family. And my education was in the army. Uh, until I was um, 18 years old, I was uh, um, in army schools all the time. And I went into the military academy in England, and I graduated as a second lieutenant in the Royal Artillery at the age of, uh, I guess, 19. And where did you grow up in England? Where's your hometown? I grew up in a, a town called Bedford, which is uh, 50 miles north of London. Is that like a little, kind of sleepy little small town, or what? what is that like? Well, it's, yeah, it's a, a small, smallish town, yes. But what, uh, so, and so, but uh, you started off in the military, but you've had this long, long career as a, as a dancer and as a uh, as a yeah, as a well, teacher and instructor, and yeah. uh, been all over the world. And that's and and what what eventually brought you here to Mississippi? Uh, well, what brought me to Mississippi was um, uh, teaching. I was already teaching. This is about um, must have been probably eighteen eighteen or twenty years ago. I came here because. Uh, I was teaching a teacher's uh, uh, class in the summer um, uh, for te- a course for teachers in the summer. And there was one student there. The course uh, demanded that they come five years in rural and before they graduate. And this one student, she came 
every year. She was a very good student. I liked her. We got together, and she had a school in Hattiesburg. So as a result of that, she asked me to come and teach here. I was at that time uh, living and teaching in Miami. Okay. And um, so let's go back a little bit and just yeah. kind of talk about your history as a performer. Of course, yeah. you said you, you came up in, in a military. You, you didn't, unlike a lot of uh, young people today who start dancing when they're in, yeah. in elementary school or younger, yeah. you you were a very late starter, weren't you? Yeah, very late. I, actually, I was extremely lucky. But um, I was fortunate because I used to like ice skating. I did a lot of ice skating as a young person. So I was um, had feeling of moving, and my body was prepared for dancing. How did you first? So you started dancing at like twenty or twenty one. Twenty one. Twenty one. Yes. What was that? What what kind of led you to it eventually? Well, um, before the war started, there was a, a touring ballet company, which is called the De Basil's Company. They came to London, and they gave a season in Covent Garden of of ballet. And I went to see it, and I was absolutely stunned because I thought it was something extraordinary. There was one particular ballet, I remember, there was a statue of a man, and the, the, the statue came to life, and I thought it was so interesting to see how something which was not mo- mobile started moving. It really, I was fascinated. And then, so how did you... Uh decide, okay, all right, I'm, I'm going to do this. How did you find a teacher? How did you get kind of connected to well, the dance community? Uh, I've been extraordinarily lucky. Everything always happens somehow with I don't have to do anything. As I say, I was used to go skating, and I used to go to a skating rink in, in Brighton, and there was a, a young girl, you know, these young girls, like 11 or 12 years old, training to become a professional uh, skater, and they had dance sessions every time you could dance with it uh, during the during the uh, during the session. Yes, we could have dance sessions. So I got to dance as a little girl, and um, she had a, a, a skating mother, you know, like a dancing mother. Oh, <laughs> like the backstage mother types. Yeah. Okay. And the mother caught on to me. I don't know why, because I was a, at that time I was a second lieutenant in, in in the in the army. Anyway, the upshot was that they invited me. The the family, the, the dancing mother invited me to their house, and I went to have lunch with them. And uh, we went into the garden. The little girl was in the garden. She was dancing around. And I said to the mother, oh, "I wish I could do that. You know, it would be marvelous." She said, "Well, why not?" So actually, she was the one who took me to my first ballet teacher, took me by the nose and took me there. It was quite extraordinary. And um, so, and so uh, today, this is the Arts Hour, and we're talking with Henry Dan. He's a uh, uh, was a ballet dancer for many years, and and has been a teacher for many decades, and teaches in the Pine Belt region of Mississippi. And he is one of the uh, Governor's Arts Award recipients uh, for 2020. Um, I was watching, I found, when I was doing some research for this interview, I found this uh, documentary on the BBC that talked about uh, ballet during, the ballet kind of world in in, in England during the war, yeah. the Second World War, which you were interviewed in. Yeah, that's right. And it, yeah. it seemed like a, just a tremendous, that, that you kind of really stepped into a really historic period for ballet in particular in England. Well, I think moment. so. We actually made history because at that time in England there were... 
only two ballet companies, and uh, they didn't perform outside of London as a rule. But during the war, um, they had to find work for the dancers, so we started touring, and we toured. Uh, we worked fifty weeks a year. We had two weeks off, and then during those uh, during the year, we actually took, uh, danced in every city in in England. And so that was how it got propagated. And I think what happened was that um, there was a great deal of tension. You know, you know the, it, we were being bombed every night and people didn't know if they were going to be there the next day. And the ballet performers were a sort of relief for the public. They would go, they would go into this magical world where, you know, mythical people, swans and beautiful princesses, you know, and they would com completely lose their everyday um, the worries which they had every day. So that's, I think, we actually made ballet popular in England at that time. Because prior to that, in this documentary, they talked about it being kind of more seen as an elite thing and and a very, like, uh, uh, coming from the outside of, like, from Russia and things like that, that, it, yeah. that, that ballet really got its English identity during that period, and there was yeah, a lot well, of original work being done as well? No, uh, if I understand you right... Um, the, actually, the the second company I worked in was the first ballet company in England. I mean, it's not it, had, it didn't have a tradition of ballet in England yeah. like they had in France and Russia. Right. So it was the first ballet company, and uh, was started by a, a lady who didn't know whether it was going to go or not, and, but it did. And it, look what it's turned into now. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Everyone's dancing now. And I guess with that, when you were talking about that traveling and all that yeah. performing, I, I guess that really allowed you to move quick. I mean, like to build your, your skill level uh, very, very quickly well, with that, not, right? Or? Not really. I had a very short initial training. I had 18 months training only before I got my first job. So actually I went on learning when I was actually dancing on stage. But the thing about um, during the war, it was very hard because we would work in one town then we would take a train go to another town and that was just week after week and it was not as easy as that because you get on the train we would be shunted into a sideline to let the troops be you know the army had the the uh, priority on the railways so we would sit side in, in, in this train, no food, there was nothing, no, no like cafeterias, nothing. It was very hard. And then we would arrive in a new town. We had to find lodgings to, to, to uh, where to stay. We would go in the dark. There was a blackout then. We'd walk around with these heavy suitcases, knocking on doors. Can you please take me in? It was very hard, extremely hard. But I guess people just really, when the performance happened, though, people were really appreciative of that because of I think all the so. shortages. Yeah, I, the people really loved the performances because they were an escape from their regular, every, everyday life. Mm -hmm. And in the documentary, it talked about some of the kind of uh, very notable works that were created that you were a part of. I think yeah. the one that um, 
symphonic variations. Symphonic variations, yeah. where they there is some a little bit of. Um, if you go on YouTube, there actually is a little bit of film of you and, yes. and your. Uh, That's right. Rehearsing they, that, or was it a rehearsal that they filmed or something? Yeah. They yeah, it was a rehearsal actually. Okay. But the, it was um, just a, only a few shots, and but um, it was interesting because at that time it was actually the first color film which had been made and it, it had no sound but it was um, interesting that they found it because it was lost for many years in somebody's archives. It just came up up in recent years, right, where they had found yes, it? Yes, yeah. one um, reporter, he looked for it and he found it. What was notable about that work in particular? Uh, well, it was... Um, it had a great deal of success, and nobody knew if it was going to have any success. He, the choreographer was Frederick Ashton, um, chose some particularly uh, passionate music, which was rather un-English, and uh, the ballet was very passionate. It, it required a lot of temperament, and... Um, People didn't know how it was going to be received. But when we finished the first night, and the curtain went went down. There was a dead silence, and we thought, "My God, has this flopped, or has it been a success?" Then they, we got this huge reception, and I think the thing about it was that it, once again that it was just um, at the time when the war was ending, and people were giving a big sigh of relief, and it was something which was gave them a wonderful feeling of relief. I think it, that's why it had its success. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Henry Danton. He is one of the Lifetime Achievement recipients uh, for this year's Governor's Arts Awards, uh, the 2020 Governor's Arts Awards, which will be taking place February 6th at the Old Capitol Museum, uh, 6 p.m., free to the public. Come on down. So um, so after the war, from what I read in your bio, th- that was a, at a point when you started kind of going abroad to perform, right? Is that correct? Well, what happened was... Um during the war, um, after the liberation of France, the company which I was working with, which was called the Saddler's Well Ballet, they went to France on a tour, which is called Enza Tour, which meant was a, um, an arrangement whereby the artists went to entertain the troops. So we were, went to France, and we went to Paris, and um, in Paris I took classes, so with a very good Russian teacher, and I liked him very much. I thought he was far superior to the teachers I'd had. So I really wanted to have more time studying with him. So when the, the war finished, 
I left the Saddlers World and I went to France to study with him. Did you, was there a company for you to join there or were you just kind of going as yeah, a student? Well, there was a kind of story there. At that time, you were allowed to take 30 pounds out of England. That was the next month. So I took off with 30 pounds, not knowing what was going to happen. And I arrived in Paris and I found the teacher who had been teaching in a particular studio was not there anymore. So I thought this is a disaster. <laughs> and I finally found out that he was teaching for a company in France called the Ballet de Champs-Élysées. And so I contacted him and he asked the company director if I could take classes with the company. So that's how I got in there. And then did you become part of that company eventually? Yes, I got or? taken okay. into the company. Yeah. We toured around in France. We did a tour uh, almost a year. And I danced with that company and worked with that teacher. So that was really a big point in the development of my career. And this was, a, did you say, a Russian? He was a, a, like a Russian master? or Yes, his name was Viktor Gazovsky. And he was a, a real character. He was blind in one eye. He was perpetually drunk. <laughs> but he was absolutely, completely in control of his, his faculties. It was a wonderful, a wonderful man, a wonderful teacher. And so how, uh, so tell me about kind of going from working in France to where you were eventually kind of touring around the world, uh, Australia, South America, these kind of places that, well, that are in your bio. <clears throat> what happened was when I left the Sailors World Valley to go to France, I asked actually for a year's leave of absence to study. They wouldn't give it to me, so I left the company. So after I'd worked with this French company, I went back to England, and I thought, well, they should take me back. You know, I've, I've advanced technically and artistically. They wouldn't take me back. So I went back to France again, and uh, I'm extraordinarily lucky. Uh, the sister of one of the dancers in the Ballet de Champs-Élysées where I had worked was the prima first ballerina of the Paris Opera. And this uh, brother, uh, she was looking for a partner, and this brother recommended me, and I got the job, just like that, without oh an gosh. audition. Wow. I was very lucky. So that was just kind of rocketing up really quickly there. Yeah, huh? it was really. And it was interesting because the Paris Opera, they, they had two principal dancers, two um, female dancers. They belonged to different political parties. And when part, one party was in, that meant that the other dancer was out. Oh, gosh. And when one party changed, that one went in and the other went out. I happened to find the one who was out. She was out for the moment. Uh -huh. But she had a very good impresario, and she got a, um, a long tour, pers um, personal uh, perf performances, personal appearances. Yeah. Um, and I got the job as her partner. So we worked for one year touring France and um, Belgium, Switzerland, Holland, Algiers, it was wonderful. I worked as her partner. There were just two of us only. We did an entire performance with two people. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. They had musical interludes between each number. We had a, um, two pianists, and they had musical interludes. But it was very hard, but it was wonderful.
That I mean, so that was you know a lot more work because you, you were just it was just yes. basically the two of you. It you didn't get a break good. at all, really. Yeah. Wow. Huh. But we went literally everywhere. I mean, you mention any place in France we didn't go. In Switzerland we went. In Holland we went. France, Spain we went. We went everywhere. It was wonderful. Most most interesting time of my life, I think. And also a po- kind of very close to the, just right after the end of the war, the war right? Yes, so, it was, yeah. So was this, um, did that create hardships, kind of traveling, and, and were the, the facilities kind well, of no, challenging in that because of that? Things were getting better already, but some of the countries had not been so much involved directly in the war. I mean, Switzerland, for example, you know, were completely removed from the war. Spain also, so it depended where you went. Okay, okay. And then when was the, at what point did you uh, immigrate to America? Well, it happened strangely. Um, I was working with this teacher in, in, in Paris, and after the war, um, some Americans started coming to Paris. And there was a one a young man came, and he came to the same teacher at the same time as I was there. And he was very well trained, beautifully trained. And so I asked him, you know, where he had been trained. He told me he'd been trained in Chicago and also in uh, New York with Balanchine School. So I thought, well, I have to see this. And, uh, well, actually, I skipped something. After the tour with the, with the um, uh, French ballerina, I went back to England. I worked in England. And uh, I thought there was sort of... I was at a dead end in England because they wouldn't take me back into the settlers' world. So I decided to migrate to the America. I was, uh, again, incredibly lucky. I mean, at that time, to get a visa to come to America was incredibly difficult. So I went to the consulate, and the young man who attended me was a ballet fan, and he knew me. Oh, my gosh. So I got my visa in 10 days, which is absolutely <laughs> unheard of. And I took off again with like 200... 200 pounds for America, not knowing what's going to happen. <laughs> I think you said in another interview, you kind of just, you've never planned anything in your life, no, right? You just kind no. of, but things just it kind of happen. Happens. That's right. Uh, so t- if you're, you're listening to the Arts Hour, and today we're talking with Mr. Henry Danton. He's he's a, a, was a long-time um, uh, a dance ballet dancer, a, a teacher, a master ballet dancer and teacher, and uh, still is working as a teacher and is one of the Governor's Arts Awards recipients for this year. Um, so when, when you got to New York, were you able to work with Balanchine at any point? Or no, what that. happened was <laughs> it happened again. When I arrived in New York, I thought I had my 200 pounds, and I thought, what am I going to do? I ha- actually had someone to say I'd met a, an American dancer in France, and he said, if ever you come to the United States, I have a room in my apartment. So I had somewhere to stay. So I thought, well, what's, what am I going to do? So I went to, immediately to Balanchine School, and um, the teacher there, I had a Russian teacher there, an old Russian teacher there, and he taught like only three days a week. The other two days, I had to find another teacher. So I went to a, another teacher with a, a Danish lady, who had her own studio. And one of the times I went there, there was one of the members of the French company I'd been. 
He had just arrived in New York with a company, a company called Roland Petit, who came with the Ballet de Paris, and they were going to do a tour of the United States. And this dancer said to me, oh, I am had such bad luck, I have tuberculosis, and I have to go back to France. So I said, give Roland my telephone number. So he, he, I got the job. He went back, and I got the, I just fell into the job. Mm -hmm. That was a French company. We toured in the United States and Canada for six months. That, I mean, this was one month after arriving. I mean, incredibly lucky. Yeah, thinking about all the, I'm sure there was still yeah. a lot of, even though it's not the New York of today, it yeah. was still competitive as, oh as a dancer, yes. the dancers, right? Yeah. yeah, I knew every dancer at the time. You knew every dancer. Nowadays, you know one, you're lucky. Yeah, yeah. So when did, at what point did you, at what point did you kind of uh, transition from being a, 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 more, of a, more of an instructor than a dancer? When did uh, that point take well, place? Well, I had quite a considerable career after that. Yeah. Shortly, I'll tell you, um, when the, the, the French tour in the United States finished, once again, out of the blue came a, an offer to go to Australia. I went to Australia for one year as a guest artist, and um, that was wonderful. We did... Uh, actually, we did the first production of a four-length ballet in Australia, which was Swan Lake. We toured doing Swan Lake so many times that we created a Guinness record, but it was never it was never given. Um, then I came back to um, to the United States. I'm getting lost. Uh, yes, and I went back to Australia again. They asked me to go back as director of the company. That lasted only for three months. The government withdrew its subsidy. The company folded. So I came back to the United States. Then I had an offer to go to... Oh, yeah, there was a reason why. I had to have an operation on my ankle, and I was not supposed to dance for three months. So in Balanchine School, I had met three dancers who came from Venezuela to take classes. I, I got to be friends with them because they were, you know, friendly people. Out of the blue, I got an offer from them to go to Venezuela to teach. And it worked out perfectly because I was not able to dance for three months. Right, okay. So I went to Venezuela presuming to teach for three months. Venezuela was absolutely incredible. They had a dictator, Marcos Perez Jimenez, and he was... Uh, bringing Venezuela into the, into the 19th century. I mean, he was renovating the absolutely incredible things he did. And it was absolutely marvelous. So I went there for three months, and I stayed for two and a half years. I never left. I mean, it was wonderful. So your work was, like, well-funded, and they were trying to kind of build a, well, a dance program was, there? Or? I went there. It was only a small school when I started. Okay. And so it, it developed into the National Ballet. Of, I actually worked into the National Ballet of Venezuela. That it was a wonderful time. Did you speak Spanish, or did I learned it very fast? <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. So that kind of became your kind of initial foray into being ser well, a serious teacher, I guess. Yes, because yeah. after after the three months, I started dancing again. So then I brought my partner from Australia, she came in and we 
started working. They had just opened the first television station then in Caracas. So we got the job of a weekly television program, my partner and myself, which was wonderful. We were paid so well. I mean, there was so much money at that time in Venezuela. So that was it was a wonderful time. But I was that was when I actually started moving from being a, a dancer only into being a dancer and a teacher at the same time. How long did you kind of... How long were you active as a dancer? Like, at what? At, how long? At what age did you finally kind of stop dancing? Um, I think I was probably thirty-one. Okay. Thirty, yeah, thirty-one, thirty-two. And that's typical for for professional dancers, probably. Depends or? entirely. Depends on. I mean, some people. Margot Fontaine, who was an English dancer, she went on dancing. She was sixty-five, and she, oh, wow. she had her best career when she was that age. Depends entirely on the physique and whether whether they uh, have injuries or you know anything can happen. Did you did, did you have physical problems that kind of kind I of was extremely lucky? Yeah. I, apart from the one operation I had on my ankle. I've never had any injuries. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. We're back on our final segment for the Arts Hour, and our guest today is Henry Danton. He is one of the Lifetime Achievement recipients for the 2020 Governor's Arts Awards. Uh, We'll be taking place February 6th at the Old Capitol. Um, So... um, so Venezuela became the first point when you were kind of working as a teacher and a, and a dancer. You eventually came back to New York, I guess, and began teaching more, or what, what happened then? Well, what happened was, as I say, life in Venezuela was absolutely wonderful. But the military decided they would depose the, the dictator, so they threw him out. So anyone who had worked with the data was dead completely immediately. So I had to leave. So I came back to the United States. And was that uh, were you able to start kind of transitioning to being a teacher in the in the states? Well, again, I was extremely lucky. My partner, who uh, came to Venezuela, my partner from Australia, came to Venezuela. She went came to the United States. She was uh, taking classes in in New York. She because we we worked together a great deal technically. She recommended me to a school in New York uh, called Ballet Arts, which was in Carnegie Hall. And I got the job there. I mean, it just fell into my lap again. So I came to New York and I taught for eight years in New York in Carnegie Hall. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, kind of your work these days. You, you're still an active teacher. Um, we were just talking off mic and you were kind of giving me your, your yeah, schedule. Well, I'm fortunate that I'm still able to teach and I have work because I mean if I would try and get a job they'd say 100 years old you should be on crutches you can't walk you can't teach anyway that's not the way so I was very fortunate that 
out of the um, a teacher's course, which I told you about, this one teacher, she brought me here. Uh, I was living in Miami, and I teaching in Miami, and this teacher, her name was Yvonne Bergeron, she brought me two or three times a year to teach in Harrisburg. And I saw that uh, she asked me if I would move here. And um, I thought, well, I saw I had the possibility I had a job in Miami, and I also had the possibility of a job here. So I thought well, there was an interesting side thing. In Venezuela, I'd met a Russian, a young Russian teacher. He was a very good teacher. And he was always asking me, he said, oh, I need to go to the United States. Please help me get in. So I saw the possibility that if we were two teachers, we could be one in Miami and one in, in Hattiesburg, then we could switch over, which would be beneficial for both schools to have that. So I actually got him into the United States on a, um, a work visa, and he was to do the first three months in Miami, and I did the first three months in Hattiesburg. All right, so he, he did the first three months in Miami because he didn't speak uh, English. He spoke Spanish, which was all right in Miami. Right. So at the end of the first three months, I went back to me and I said, OK, it's your turn to go to, to Hattiesburg now. I'm not going. He had got himself uh, into the local ballet company in, in Miami, and he didn't want to go. So actually I was morally obliged to stay in Hattiesburg because I had promised that teacher that she would have a teacher, one or the other. Yeah. So that's how I arrived here. And I mean, once again, you know, things happen fortuitously. And fortunately, you know, I've been very happy here. That's how I got here. It was by... By an accident, I sold up the river. <laughs> <laughs> sold up the river, but but happy to stay. Um, and and you have a you, you were saying you have a pretty active. Uh, you teach several times a week still, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and and just give us just give us an overview of kind of what your teaching schedule is like these days. Well, I teach uh, classical ballet. That's the only thing I know really. Um, I uh, teach uh, students, not the, not children, not young children. I usually get them around um, 10 or 11 when they've already had initial training. And I teach them and they, hopefully they go on until they graduate and come out of school and then they, they go to college. Uh, that's around 16 or 17 so hopefully, you know, I have them for five years, and it's wonderful because I can see the results. You know, it's marvelous. Teaching is that wonderful because you see something happening. Not only do they grow physically, but they grow in every way. Yeah. I think I, I saw, I read that you said that, like, teaching is your vitamins, that you oh, kind of helps you. Oh, yeah. absolutely I mean, the children are marvelous. The, the things they say, they, they ask such innocent questions. I mean, they're, they're the only innocent, pure people in the world today, children. <laughs> and you are uh, you've you've done some work with um, Bellhaven's dance program as well, right? Yes. Well, I was fortunate with Bellhaven. Um, I got to know an ex dancer from the Royal Ballet in England who is uh, on the faculty there, and um, we got to be. I didn't know her because she was way after my time. We got to be friends, and through her, she has uh, arranged that I go to Bellhaven do a residency. And teach a, a, class, a classical piece or do a choreography. And I've done that um, 
three times. I, it's wonderful to work there. I mean, it's a wonderful university, absolutely marvelous. And they have a pretty large dance program there oh, as well. Oh, yes, yes. A very, and a very good dance department. They produce good dancers because they do not only ballet, but they do other type of dancing, which is necessary nowadays for a dancer. Right, right. They have to do everything nowadays. Yeah. Well, um, I would be remiss, you know, I would imagine, given your your longevity, people always want to hear about, you know, so how do you do it? You know, you're you're an expert among experts on this, and so let's... Let's give us some highlights of what you might well, tell people. Once again, things just happen. I mean, I absolutely yeah. believe in life that things just happen. Yeah. When I was 49 years old, I got cancer. I got a Hodgkin's disease, which is sort of supposed to be a terminal cancer. I was fortunate enough to be guided by a chiropractor to someone in Boston who was a, a natural healer. And she... Uh, just guided me into a different way of life. I had to go on a a long fast. When Actually, when I arrived in the place, she said, well, you are dying. You know you're dying. And then she fortunately saw my expression. She said, well, we're all dying. You know? but, so she guided me into uh, uh, changing my lifestyle, my diet, my entire lifestyle. She, she put me into what they did. They did not tell you anything. Not They didn't tell you what to do anything. They gave you a lot of literature to read. And I found this wonderful book, which is um, on how to live correctly. And I read it, and it, I accepted it simply because it made logic. Everything the author said, he had a good reason I could accept it. So I um, accepted that system, and I regenerated myself from absolutely nothing. I went down to the nearest point that you can be to dying, and I just grew up from there. And it's, uh, it works. I mean, I'm a vegetarian. I have been a vegetarian for 50 years. And apart from that, there's something about the way you live. You know about how you look after your body, how you breathe. You're trying to find good air. You try to find good food. It's actually quite logical. <laughs> you know, you have to live right, I think. Yeah. And, 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 and in terms of the physicality of being a dancer, what yes, I, I mean, I would imagine there's, there's elements of that that are still with you, you know, in terms no, of how you... I think that's the best thing, yeah. is that I exercise all the time, and I think exercise is the answer to everything. It really is the answer to everything. You have to keep your body, it's a machine, you, know? you have to keep it in good shape. Yeah. And I, I've seen some footage of you working with the students, so you're not you're not in a full routine, obviously, but you are mm. on the bar and yeah, kind no, of I instructing never sit them. Down. I never yeah. sit down. I try to demonstrate as much as I can, which of course I can't, but you know, they ask you, they say, Show me, show me, show me. And I say, No, I've just shown you, do it again. <laughs> How do you, I mean, I guess that's when you were younger, you could, you know, physically do, you know, show them with your own body. Yeah, yes. And now I guess it has to be more of a description or how do you, how do you manage that part of it? Well, I try to reach them intellectually, which sometimes is not so easy. I try to explain to them why they're doing something, the cause and effect. You know, if you do something, something else is going to happen, which is not just teaching them steps or movements. It's trying to teach them to think about what they're doing because I think 
dancers have to be thinking people, they can't just be robots, you know, doing gymnastic movements. It's not possible. So they, and it works. I can somehow manage to reach them, somehow. It's like teaching them the artistry of it, not just the physicality of it, I guess. Yes, that's yeah. part of artistry, is part of it, yeah. Yeah. Well, and what... Uh, who are some of the who are some of the people that stand out over your career? Some of the people, you know, some of these other legendary people that you've met over the time that, well, that really I've affected you. Fortunately, I've met so many people young with talent who were not known who have become people. <laughs> it just happens over and over again. There was a way. in in France. I met um, a young French dancer. We became friends simply because we were both poor. We had no money, and we, we, we used to share what we had. He became very famous. He, his name was Maurice Béjar, and he had a wonderful French company, which worldwide. Another one in England was a young dancer. He was not a classical ballet dancer. He was working with a contemporary company in England, but... He came to the ballet classes, and, and I got to be friendly with him, and I said, well, I think at that time there's not so much career in contemporary as there is in ballet. He, he went into ballet. Peter Wright, he's now Sir Peter Wright. He formed the, the Birmingham Royal Ballet. That was another one. And uh, who else, my goodness? <laughs> Uh, one of my students, um, I had a student in Venezuela. She was Dutch, and her father was a, a cultural attache in Venezuela. I had her from age, I think, 11 until 13 or 14. She came to the United States. Uh, she went to Canada. She became a very famous ballerina, uh, Martine van Hamel. She was a first dance of the American Ballet Theatre for 25 years. So I've been so lucky to, you know, have the chance to know these people. Yeah, yeah. And you maintain your connections in England. I, I believe you go back. Do you yes, go back every year? I go back every year. Okay. In, when I was 92, I started having a birthday party with the friends I knew there. And it's become a tradition. I go back every year. And last year I... At my 100th birthday, it was a whiz-bang year. I had a huge party. It was wonderful. And I wonder what, how I can cap that How can you stop that? One. Yeah. <laughs> Just by showing up, I think, right? Yeah. And these are, I guess, former students, former who, who, who all, a lot of your contemporaries are gone, of course. But Well, there are not so many of them left. That's yeah. the thing. That's the thing. That each year, there are less. In England, I've got contemporary from my time, there there's only only one left now, two left. Uh, the, the one who the, just died recently, Jillian Lin, she was a choreographer of Cats and the choreographer of Phantom of the Opera. She was a wonderful friend that I had. She died a year ago. And it's very sad when they go because, you know, Linked with the past, right? Your connections to yeah. that, that deep past. But 
but it, but it is interesting to see that you know the recognition that they're giving you for you know your connections to yeah. that that really amazing time period in in in, yeah, well, in arts in England. Theatre people are, are special, you know. They're they're very clanny. You know, they they like to be together. <laughs> Well, now you, you you don't make any plans, but so what do you for this year? Is just continue on teaching? Do you have any trips besides England, Prague, well, or anything I, like I've that? I already booked my passage to London, which is really tempting the devil because I may not meet, <laughs> I may not arrive till March, but I, I'm going. I'll have another birthday party. I don't know what I'll do in the summer. I wait until I get a message. Are you still ch- traveling about in the U.S. at all, or do you have any kind of guest appearances in other places? Or Well, I just went... <laughs> for Christmas, I went to Panama, and I, on my way back, I went to stayed in Miami. So I, it just comes to me what I'm going to do. I don't ask. It just comes to me. I don't know why. I say one day, oh, I'm going to go to Panama. So <laughs> I went to Panama. I went back because I'd worked in Panama for six months, and it was wonderful at that time. And I thought, well, I like to go back to all the places where I've been. So yeah. we, we, that's it, is it? Well, we, we're, we're, we're so happy that you're going to be part of the Governor's Arts Awards again uh, for, for this year, and uh, thank you for coming up for this interview. Uh, we really appreciate it. We want to let people know... Um, that the Governor's Arts Awards, they can come meet you uh, on Thursday, February 6th. It will take place at the Old Capitol Museum in Jackson. There's a public reception at 4.30, uh, and lots of good food will be available, and the ceremonies at 6 o'clock. Uh, be sure to be there early to get a seat, and you can come meet Mr. Danton and all the other uh, recipients that are going to be there. And uh, this is free and open to the public. Uh, uh, if you've been listening to the Arts Hour, you missed the first part of the show, or you want to share this show with a friend, you can go to the MPB's website, mpbonline.org. They post all our past shows as streaming files. You can also uh, subscribe to us as a podcast. Until next time, we'll be seeing you around. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app.